Well, welcome once again to Voice of Reason Radio. Your host, Chris Honholtz and Richard Story, joining you on this 10th of June, 2023. Yes, Rich is back. I told you it was just going to be a brief thing. We just had somebody else filling in for a short time. <laughs> but we are glad to be back with you guys, and we're glad to ha- uh, be discussing this particular topic with you, which we'll get into very quickly here. Um, there's a lot to cover, and... Um, not nearly as much time as we would like to cover all these things, but we'll get into it. And just a reminder, once again, we're part of the Christian podcast community. Would love for you guys to go check out the various programs on there. You're always going to be blessed by it. And also, please go to slavetothekeen.com. Get on that website. Follow us as a uh, as a you know, getting email updates, basically, on stuff that we are putting out on the website. And uh, it's the best way to, to get in contact with us. It has contact information. It has our social media. Gives you links to all the uh, you know the podcasting and uh, blog articles. And I do have at least two in in the queue that I need to get out. I, I promised you guys last week. I had that stuff I, I want to work on. Pray for my time management, please. <laughs> but uh, grateful that you, if you would go do that. And again, that's how you if you want to support the program, you can do that as well. Uh, want to jump right into this tonight. Really going to kind of keep the banter down to just a little bit. Before we do that, though, Brother Rich, how are you doing this week? Glad to have you back, brother. You know, I'm glad to be back, and as always, I'm better than I deserve. I'm going to pre-apologize once more to our listeners. I'm still trying to recover from a severe allergy attack, and I'm still rather congested and gunked up and nasally, so if my voice is a little off, more so than usual, that's why. <laughs> but as I said, better than I deserve. And thankfully, the Lord has blessed me because I'm not influenced by every wave or wind of doctrine that blows in from the culture into the church. Sadly, that is the prevalent spirit of this age is to abandon Scripture and adhere to the whims of culture. Mm-hmm. Um, and like you said, we're just jumping right into this. And yes, I'm implying something there. (laughs) We all know what's been going on on Twitter this week with Rick Warren and his his stance for egalitarianism and his defiance of the SBC. And I don't know, I know that you and I do and most of our followers do, and I'm hoping someone will listen to this episode that supports Rick Warren, that supports egalitarianism, that's defending Rick Warren, and if you are such a person, please listen to this episode with an open mind and an open Bible. Engage what we're saying according to the Word of God and examine things deeper than just superficial tweets mm-hmm. by someone who is so obsessed with himself and his hubris that he will not listen to anyone or take correction from anyone. And there's a reason for that. Um, I noticed something today, brother, that I don't know if others have picked up on it and if they've posted about it, it's just a matter that I didn't see it. But there's one thing interesting that I've noticed that to me proves this is all about Rick Warren and really and truly has nothing to do with the SBC or women preaching or egalitarianism or anything else. It's all about Rick Warren and his infuriated anger over the fact that the SBC dared to mm-hmm. correct him on an issue that the SBC has stood by and stood for and stood on 
when it comes to the Word of God and who is and who is not qualified to preach, not just women, but men. It's been a stance that the SBC has had from the beginning that was laid out in a verbal-type form with the BFM 2000 because they were combating an influence that was starting to infect the church in the late 80s and in the 90s, and it grew out of the charismatic movement, the Jesus movement, and these other unbiblical movements that had started infecting the Southern Baptist Convention then, and they plainly stated in the BFM 2000 who is and who is not to be a pastor. Mm -hmm. And we all know that they were quoting First Timothy and Titus and some other passages about men are only are the only ones that are called to be pastors, elders, shepherds, whatever title you want to put on it. That's why the statement was made. And, of course, not everyone voted for that statement, but a great number of churches who disagreed with it left the SBC. Now, first and foremost, before I go any further, I'd like to say this, that people have often bragged about the conservative resurgence of the SBC and during that time and that they won the battle. I'm sorry, but they didn't. If it had been a true victory, they would not have declared victory and stopped fighting for mm-hmm. it. Part of the problem is they quit. They, they took the watchman down off the wall, declared victory, and nobody was guarding the gate, so to speak, anymore. Yeah, That was part of the problem that led to where we're at today. There are a lot of other things, and for those that are really familiar, the SBC, BFM 2000, when it comes to Article 14, talking about friendly cooperation, all but states, the ends justify the means as long as it's, as long as your conscience feels good about what you're doing. It was a self-defeating document in the fact that it did not go far enough declaring what is and what is not to be construed as friendly cooperation. Because even at the, when it comes to salvation issues, and whether works are part of salvation or not, and, and these deeper issues, it left the door open then for pastors and churches to be cooperating with these other religions and these other denominations as long as the the cause was just, as long as the cause was biblical. Yeah. You know, when we hear about abortion ministries and partnering with Roman Catholics and all these other religions and, and cults, you know, it's fine to partner with them because, you know, this is a righteous cause. You know, we, we mm. need to defeat this. They left the door open for all of that in Article 14 of the BFM 2000 when it comes to cooperation. And they basically said, well, this is what we believe. This is the BFM 2000. This is what we believe. But, and then that but is highlighted in Article 14. You know, as long as your conscience is clear, you can do these things. Well, first and foremost, the Bible teaches that our conscience is seared. When it comes to sin, when it comes to the influences of the culture and the way that we think about society, more times than not, unless we're exercising true biblical discernment, we will be influenced by these outside pressures, and we will start caving to the whims of society and what they deem is and is not acceptable. Mm -hmm. We've seen it when it comes to same-sex marriage. We've seen it now when it comes to homosexuality, transgenderism, and men far smarter than I have stated in the past and have shown that once a denomination opens the door 
to egalitarianism and women preaching, that leaves the door open for all these other forms and types of heresies to enter the church when it comes to gender roles. Mm -hmm. We've seen it in numerous denominations. Now, back to what I was going to say, and I'll hand it over to you for the biggest portion of the rest of the show. Rick Warren, in his, in his diatribe today, in his quote-unquote apology for women and for having misunderstood scriptures for 50 years, in his other posts, it's always, I did this, I decided, I changed my mind. There's one thing that I've not seen mentioned in any of this, is Saddleback. Where are the statements from Rick Warren about he started thinking this way, and he took it to the elders of his church. He took it to the deacons of his church. He took it to the mature men of his church and discussed these issues. Where mm -hmm. is that at? Right. There, there, I have not seen a single one. It is always I, Rick Warren, I this, I that, I decided. My first question is, who is the authority at Saddleback? Do they all submit to his lordship over Saddleback? Is he Lord of Saddleback, or is there some board or entity within Saddleback that is offering him guidance, that is offering him accountability? Who is he held accountable to? Because from my impression that I see and read, he's held accountable to no one but himself. He's refusing to be held accountable to the SBC. He's refusing to submit to the authority of the BFM 2000 and the SBC. He's refusing to submit to the authority of Scripture. He's refusing discipline from the SBC. So who holds Rick Warren accountable for his actions, for his words? Obviously, it's not the church. Rick Warren is not Saddleback. Saddleback is supposed to be a church, mm -hmm. and regardless of our views and opinions on how church government is to be ruled and handled, one thing most members of the SBC would acknowledge is that that pastor is not an autonomous rule over that church. He is supposed to be submitting to someone, some governing body within that church. His is not an absolute sovereign rule. It's not I decide, so the entire Saddleback in our 50 or so churches that we planted must submit to what I have decided. But the thing is, that is the way that it, and I could be wrong, but just on appearances, that's the way that Saddleback is governed and operated. It's according to the word of Rick Warren, not according to the word of God. And if anyone has been a member of an SBC church or is a member now, especially a small SBC church, they will completely understand what I'm talking about, because you have a group of generally men that do the vetting process when it comes to appointing a deacon, when it comes to hiring a new pastor, when it comes to making decisions involving that local church and what they will and will not be doing. It's never just one person's decision. Now, you may have a family or an individual in that church that donates more than anyone else who thinks because they donate so much they get a bigger say in what transpires. And if anyone's been an SBC pastor for any length of time can relate to what I'm saying. There's always that one family or that one individual that wants to dictate what that church does and how it spends the money and where this goes and where that goes. Sadly for the SBC, Rick Warren and Saddleback is that individual because they are the second highest donor to the SBC co-op program. 
So in Rick Warren's mind, he thinks he has justification to tell the SBC what it is and is not going to do. Mm -hmm. But back to what I was asking, have you seen anywhere where Rick Warren talks about having sat down with any leadership within Saddleback and wrestling with these thoughts and decisions and his change of mind when it comes to women preaching and the discussion of, among him and, and the mature Christians within his church. Have you seen a conversation about that anywhere, or is it always, I decided, I changed my mind, so everyone else is supposed to go along with what I think is right? I would say it's it's the latter, brother. I I've don't think in any interaction that we have ever covered or talked about when it comes to Rick Warren, excuse me, um, that we have ever taught, seen him talk about as a pastor, as an elder, which, by the way, he's supposedly retired now. He's supposedly not the head senior pastor of Saddleback Church anymore, but Yet he's speaking for Saddleback. Interesting. Um, well, I, I'm going to add this real quick. There is a legitimate reason for that. Saddleback, being the one that got disfellowshipped and filed the appeal, can nominate mm -hmm. a spokesperson from that church to address the appeal. And it can be anyone they want that oh, is yeah. a member of that church. So that is why, on paper anyway, that is why Rick Warren is doing this. But Rick Warren is actually doing this because in Rick Warren's mind, this entire issue is about Rick Warren. It has nothing to do with Saddleback. Well, and that's because exactly his statements, it. his statements in itself prove what I was saying. It's in everything that he's put out there, especially this week regarding the SBC convention next week in New Orleans. It's always I decided, I changed my yes. mind, I did this, I did that, and you never see him mention Saddleback. Interestingly enough. I know a lot of pastors in the Southeast. I don't, I, I can't give you a number, Rick Warren, but I do know a lot of pastors. And believe it or not, before you're standing on the convention floor last year during the convention in Anaheim and declaring how great you were, most normal, typical SBC members and pastors, meaning ones that don't stay in the know on what's going on on the convention level, did not even realize that Saddleback was a member of the SBC mm -hmm. until he came out and stood on the floor and the videos went viral. Yeah. That, to me, says a lot, that he's been that quiet and been that much behind closed doors for the last 40 years to where most people that are members within the SBC didn't even realize that he was part of the SBC. And now he's coming out demanding that the SBC cave to what he wants and what he deems and what he thinks. To me, that speaks volumes on how much he actually cares about the SBC. I don't care how much money he's donated, but prior to last year, I don't know if he's ever even been seen at an SBC convention, much less spoken one. And that, and that's really what this boils down boils down to. This is um, this is a particular individual who has made a career of selling Jesus as a product and he's tried to be basically, I mean, his, his six, seven minute soliloquy at last year's convention was really a pat on his own back of all the things that he accomplished for the SBC. As you said, up to that point, most people probably didn't even know he was SBC because 
they never really made an issue of, of being SBC. And he knew that Saddleback was facing potential disfellowship for going out of its way. Not just, oh, well, we, we didn't know. No, you knew. You knew what the Baptist Faith and Message did, and you publicly, publicly defied it. Defied this, uh, this, this document that all SBC churches come together and agree. This is this, it's it's not a confession. It's not a creed. It's not a uh, you know. Uh, it's it's basically this is what it means to be SBC and be in, in, in friendly cooperation with one another. And you all agree I, to do that. And he basically says, don't care, doing what we want. And now, having openly defied that, the SBC acting, and I think you and I talked about pre-show, I, I think there might be some more, I think there's less steel in the spine of the executive committee than most people think by uh, disfellowshipping him and then saying, but if he wants to appeal and the messengers decide to bring him back, well, okay then. I don't think it, I think that's more politically motivated than it had anything to do with actually being biblically motivated. Um, but we see this defiance, defiance of scripture, defiance of uh, the Baptist faith and message and basically daring them to do something. And now that they have, here comes Rick Warren. And, you know, by the way, if you guys want to hear what we talked about this just uh, several weeks ago now about Rick Warren's biblical arguments, and you can assume I've put that in air quotes, biblical arguments about women preaching and teaching men in the church. We actually did that. It's uh, it's on our web website. Yeah, it was on March 27th of this year. We'll put it in the show notes. Rick Warren's view of scripture and the ordination of women. Uh, women hey, bro, pastors. let me jump yeah. in just a minute. Go ahead. Um, before we get any further in my train of thought drills, backing <laughs> up just a moment, I'm sure Saddleback has a statement of faith. Oh, yeah. First, if someone is in violation of scripture that is openly embracing sin, who thinks that it's okay because their interpretation deems it so, would Saddleback kick them out, or would they say that their statement of faith is more of a suggestion of faith? You know, there, there's, a, there's another issue in all of this that's forgotten by most of churches in the SBC, and that's discipline, yeah. or, or holding someone accountable. That's another discussion for another time. But as Rick Warren adhering to any statement of faith, or is everything just a suggestion of faith? And interestingly enough, the authority given to the executive committee to do what's been done when it comes to disfellowshipping Saddleback occurred, I think it was in 2015, when, a, when there was a meeting and a vote was held. They were addressing these, quote-unquote, abusive pastors. And yes, I know there are some men within the SBC who have gone beyond what is written and, and exercised, you know, use their authority in an unbiblical way to abuse individuals. I'm not denying that. But Rick Warren was in favor of that motion. He was in favor of giving the executive committee the authority and the, the basically the power to uphold the BFM 2000. He supported that. And like I said, I think it was in 2015. 
because they were talking about abuse, you know, back when J.D. Greer and, and that was his big thing was, you know, all this abuse going on within the SBC and the whole Church 2 movement and all this other stuff. Mm -hmm. He voted and was in, I don't, well, I'm, let me rephrase that. I don't know if he voted, but he was in favor of the SBC executive committee having the authority to disfellowship a church or a pastor who refused to address abuse in the church. That's where their authority grew from when it comes to doing what's been done now with disfellowshipping a church and exercising that authority. Um, I don't know how often in the past that has actually been done. It has been done, but I'm not sure how often. But first and foremost, he was supporting their authority to do this. The problem is someone else came along and said, okay, Saddleback has been violating the BFM 2000 and violating what mm -hmm. Southern Baptists believe, and he's been doing it openly and in, in a rebellion towards the SBC for X number of years. And it's not just the issue of egalitarianism that has disqualified Saddleback from being a member of the SBC, but Rick Warren himself over the last 20, 30 years has openly embraced Muslims and prayed with Muslims, prayed to Allah, has been working arm-in-arm arm with Roman Catholics and all these other denominations, that's part of Rick Warren's problem. He looks at the SBC like any other ecumenical group or organization that he's worked with and partnered with and belonged to for the last 20, 30 years. To me, that's one of the heart issues in all of this. But basically, Rick Warren, and if you go through and read all the transcripts of the different interviews and discussions, I think it was in 2019 where they announced a woman pastor at Saddleback. That's about the time that it got brought and, and made aware to the SBC committee, and it was motioned that they be disfellowshipped. And it took two or three years before all the pieces fell into place. But it was after that, when he got called out, it was after that, I think it was in one of the interviews that Rick Warren had with Russell Moore, that he said in 2020 he started looking through the scriptures and, and reevaluating what it meant to be a pastor and who could be a pastor. The problem is he didn't make these conclusions until he got called out for what he was doing. Yeah. And that's first and foremost what people need to remember. He tries to come across as, well, I've been reading the scriptures and studying this for the last 10 years, and now I've come to the conclusion. No, he never even looked at the issue until he was called out for embracing and supporting something that scripture firmly stands against. And I'm sorry for interrupting, brother, no, but I wanted right. to throw that in there while it was fresh on my mind. Yeah, no, don't even worry about that. Don't even yeah, absolutely. So let's let's go through what's happened this week. Now, first and foremost, and we won't read through this letter because it's somewhat lengthy, but we're gonna give you the link to it. I, I'm loath to give it the this particular length because it's Baptist News Global. This is the same website that did the hit piece on uh Tom Buck and um about a little over a year ago when we covered it back in April of 22. However, when I was looking for this letter, it was the only one that had it published in its entirety. And I want you to be able to read that. And I think it's absolutely necessary. And I, in fact, what I would encourage you to do, pause the program. Go If you have not read this, go and read it because it gives context about what we're going to say. But what he did with this letter is he basically wrote to some 477,000 churches and wants them to be on board with him. And so his, his points in this letter is that, look, we are 
a mosaic of churches. We don't have this one-size-fits-all confession and creed. We have the Baptist faith and message, which he calls or refers to, as it says in, in, it's a, it, in the text itself, a consensus of opinion. And he, as he says, report, or warns us that it's not a creed to be used, as he phrases, enforce doctrinal uniformity or exclude members of our den- denominational family. Now, here's the thing. Um, Robin, let me let me interrupt you just a moment and clarify. Um, you said four hundred and seventy-seven thousand. Yeah. I think it's forty-seven thousand. Did I? My apologies. Forty-seven thousand. That's. I think I did say that. My apologies. So for- I just want to. In this episode, <laughs> I want to be as clear as yes. possible, so no one can accuse us of misrepresenting what's actually going on. So <laughs> I appreciate I it. Thank for you for the interruption. No, Go no, ahead. no. I'm glad you <laughs> caught that. I'm sorry. I didn't even realize I said it. So yeah, forty-seven thousand churches. And I think in one of his tweets said, well, 16,000 responded in favor. Um, what he's trying, what he does is that the Baptist, he's trying to say that the Baptist faith and message is not a confession or creed. And it's something that you cannot hold every church to. And what he's trying to do in this letter is paint the fact that by disfellowshipping over something that's in the Baptist faith and message, you're, you've made it a confession and creed, and therefore you're demanding doctrinal, uh, you know, doctrinal uniformity. And now the problem is, is that that Baptist faith and message is something that as an SBC church, you say, yes, we agree with these things. And we agree to the process because if, let's just say, a church decided to ordain a transgender homosexual uh, pedophile. And that violated the Baptist faith and message. The, 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 the executive committee could disfellowship if it was verified and they, they refused to repent of it. And they did this. It is a, it is a denial of the authority of scripture in that, in, when dealing with that role. And it is, hey, when you came on board as being a part of the SBC, you agreed that that, that this is what the role of pastor is. And so and if, me, you, if you refuse to adhere to it, you are then no longer walking in friendly cooperation. Go ahead, brother. Now, in, in full disclosure, you know, give Rick Warren the benefit of the doubt. Okay, he truly believed in complementarianism all these years, and he truly changed his mind, and he truly is convinced from Scripture that egalitarianism is biblical and it's okay for a woman to preach. Okay, give him the benefit of the doubt. What should he have done differently? What would have been the proper avenue for him to address this issue? It would not have been to defy yeah. the BFM 2000 because he didn't agree with it. The thing should have, the, the, what Saddleback should have done was sent messengers to the convention with a motion to address mm-hmm. that portion of the BFM 2000 and ask that it be considered and revised and present his biblical arguments and done everything in the proper way and addressed it to the SPC body, discussed it with the members, discussed it with the SBC executive committees, whatever year that may have took place, like 19 or 20, there is an SBC convention every year. But instead of taking it to the convention floor and addressing 
addressing the issue in the form of a motion or proposing an amendment to the BFM 2000, he did none of this. He just openly stated, we're endorsing women pastors. It's biblical. I decided it's okay. So now the rest of the SBC has got to get on board with me and change their mind and change the BFM 2000 and ignore all these things. Instead of doing it in the proper order, which would have been by amendment or by motion to the SBC convention, he just openly declares, this is what I've decided. Now, this is what everyone else must adhere to because I decided I was wrong. And that means that everybody else is wrong. Am I missing the point or that no. makes more sense? That, that's, exactly on, that's exactly on point. And that when you read his letter, I mean, here's an individual who did none of the things that, as you said, Baptist Faith and Message, you know, it outlines this friendly cooperation, which means, hey, we can go as a Southern Baptist church and make, you know, amend, uh, propose amendments. We can, uh, you know, propose resolutions. We can propose all kinds of things. None of that was done. It was an open defiance to say, no, we don't, we're not going to comply with this. And you now have to take us. And that's what he says about what happened to Saddleback Church. He says, if, if, the, if, the, if this is not reversed, if Saddleback is, uh, removal is not reversed, and they stand by this ruling based upon the uh, Baptist face and message, he says, it will, one, change the basis of our cooperation, two, change the basis of our identity, three, centralize power in the executive committee to take away autonomy from the churches, Four, turn our confession into a creed, which Baptists have always opposed. We all grew up with the slogan, we, we have no book but the Bible and we have no creed but Christ. By the way, that's a creed. Um, so, <laughs> you know, he is he's absolutely trying to, you know, paint the picture that it doesn't matter what he did. It doesn't matter what Saddleback did. What matters is they were held accountable and that's not fair. And so... His entire letter is what we should really be doing is just being concerned about being together for missions. Well, how do you define mission? How do you define cooperation? How do you define any of it apart from some sort of documentation that says this is how we work together? And once a church chooses not to work, you know, works in contradiction to that, how do you deal with it? Unfortunately, what Rick Warren is arguing for is a removal of any means whatsoever of holding any church accountable. When we covered that the the uh, the episode on his view of why women can be ordained as pastors, when you listen to that Russell Moore interview, he gives only certain ways that a church can can be disfellowship. I mean, he has a very small small measure. For which churches should be disfellowshipped. In other words, a, any church can do whatever it wants and have no accountability to the other churches in which they are working cooper in cooperation with, as long as it you know they're not in sin or there's not some sort of abuse or something like that. And yet we have a church who is openly defying the word of God has openly defied the Baptist faith and message, has made no effort to appeal to the churches within the SBC and to, to, uh, 
at the, these meetings to make any kind of amendments, make any kind of resolutions, make any kind of changes. He's held accountable for it. Oh, now, now, oh, this is a bridge too far. <laughs> so what he's calling for in this letter is to say that we are submissive to Christ. We are coming together for missions and, 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 and for evangelism and discipleship. And, hey, for 80 years, we didn't even have this. This is something new. And, by the way, it's all about power and control for a small group of people. and Which is interesting when you stop and think about it, because most of what we've seen going on in recent years, we've covered it before on this program. Others have done it even uh, a far greater job for uh, in that area. Most of what we've seen in the SBC is it's moving left. It's, it's moving further and further into waters where it is making friends with the world and yet he would say that it, he's trying to argue that this is a small group of people who are trying to weaponize this baptist faith and message and turn it into a creed for exclusion which is exactly not what it is in fact um it took pretty egregious effort on the part of saddleback to basically punch the sbc in the nose and have them do it so openly that even though the, the, the executive committee and that last year were like, well, we need to study what pastor means. No, the, the messengers do it. No, you don't. <laughs> no, you do not. We all know what it means. Now, Moeller got up. I know what it means. We put it in there. You know what it means. It, it, they, they, were left, they, they were left with no place to turn. They had no choice because he had so openly defied the Baptist faith and message that with no, with no effort, as you said, Rich, to, to make any effort or any changes or argue for any amendments or resolutions. And then they're like, Oh, this is weaponization. Absolutely not. And he, he finally wraps it up by saying in this letter, by saying, if we don't correct the, the direction where we've been heading for eight years by saying no to the executive committee's misguided ruling and then repealing the unbaptist 2015 amendment our convention will continue to grow weak and weaker and smaller this is this is the worst thing i you know kind of argumentation there's not an argument for what is the biblical truth look if we do this we're going to chase out every church who th who's afraid that if they step out of outside the Baptist faith and message, they're going to get punished. So we're just going to get weak and small. Now, when you think about who Rick Warren is and what Saddleback is, they're, they're, you know, and his argument last year about the millions of pastors they've trained, excuse me, that he's trained, um, that's that's the argument. It's about, oh, well, you, you can't get smaller. You, you, you can't, it's all about growth. It's all about the numbers, baby. And that's the problem, is that he is trying to appeal to an emotional uh, an emotional response. He's not okay. arguing about what he did. He's not arguing about how he defied it. He's arguing that actually holding a church who has done such defiance, that's just, that's just not fair. Go ahead, brother. I'm sorry. One problem, if they had <clears throat> went about this biblically, if they went about this issue according to the SBC convention and filed a motion or resolution or amendment or whatever you want to label it. If they had done that, they would have 
had to address the elephant in the room, which is what are the qualifications for a woman to be a pastor? The Bible has absolutely none. And I think Rick Warren knows this, and I think maybe that's one reason why they never did it, did things the proper and orderly way, because God is not a God of chaos. God is a God of order and discipline, and it's his way, not our way, not Rick Warren's way. But if he had actually, if Saddleback had actually went through the process and filed and addressed this on the floor or addressed this to the committee, the question would have been asked, okay, if this is your way of thinking, what are the qualifications of a woman pastor? No one can answer that because it's not in the Bible. Mm -hmm. It's left up to their own individual opinion. Now, that being the case, if it's left up to an individual's opinion and they're not basing anything on what the Word of God actually states, that this is a sin, this is, if you are doing this, this is in disobedience to God, they have no standard to even judge whether whether a man is being abusive or not, because in that man's individual eyes, by his own opinion, he may not be being abusive to his wife or to a woman in that congregation. Without the Word of God, there's no standard to define what is a pastor. There's no def- there's no standard to define what is abuse. So Rick Warren's trying to say, okay, it's this is what I've decided, so this is right. It's up to the individual to determine what is and what is not truth. That is what the world says. That is what every heretical, false gospel, false cult, false religion says. That it's up to me to de- it's up to the individual to choose what is truth. Mm-hmm. In Rick Warren's words, he's saying that there's he has he stated plainly there are hundreds of interpretations to any given verse. That is elementary school hermeneutics. It's not, we don't say, well, this is what the verse means to me, because that is basically the way Rick Warren is putting it. He's, he's conflating interpretation with application. And if he, and according to his own words, he's been to seminary, he studied Greek, he knows all these basic principles. But yet he, he's throwing that out there because that appeases to the ears of, of the world and appeases and, and tickles the ears of those who are either new to Christ or don't have never studied and who do not exercise discernment. When it comes to Rick Warren, we're not talking about some new Christian or someone that's only been going to church for a year or two. We're talking about someone who's had the title of pastor around 40 years, who's been to seminary, who's had the training, who's done all the legwork, who knows better, and who should know that Scripture is not, this is what the verse means to me. And that is, in essence, what he has stated. Is it not? No, absolutely. And that's that's what it boils down to. He, he has decided this. And the thing that's so funny is in that open letter, he tries to say that they're doing this, and 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 basically, not a, you know not holding to the Baptist faith and message. He says that it's not it that there doesn't require anybody to change their theology, except it's the 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 Baptist faith and message is theologically driven, and so if it is doctrinally and theologically driven, and but we're going to say well. Even on something that's so clear in Scripture, not what's what you want it to sound like, Rick, 
But what's so clear in what Scripture actually says, for, for you to argue, oh, this doesn't require anybody to change their theology, what you then are saying is, oh, well, then what you, theology really doesn't matter. It, it just doesn't matter, and we just disagree on it. And in fact, it does matter. It's a, it makes every difference in the world. Well, one thing, too, that stood out to me in that commentary that he put out about those 16,000 churches or individuals, what I don't remember exactly how he worded it, that replied to him out of the 47,000 letters he wrote, you know, by his own words last year, he trained a million pastors. Well, if, if there were only 16,000 that replied to him in support, that's 1.6% of the million he trained. Yeah. That's very, 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 um, no other way to put it, that's very sad. But what jumped out at me is several pastors we know that are part of the SBC received that letter mm-hmm. where he he was bragging and talking about all these pastors were his hero and all these other things. It was less than a week later that he was saying he had 16,000 responses. My question is, how did he read 16,000 responses in less than a week? That's not even possible, is it? No, I, I I don't believe it is. But I also believe that there's some playing with the numbers that basically anytime you sold uh, a, a training program, anytime a video was watched, anytime there was a conference where somebody from Saddleback spoke, oh, that's training. So I, I, I think there's some... I, I think there's some playing with the numbers there. So, but um, oh, go ahead. But but just based on his words, if we if we give him the benefit of the doubt and taking him at his word, what he stated in his own own tweet in his own postings, mm-hmm. he had sixteen thousand responses. Which, if you look, go back and look at the dates of the tweets that he posted, was less than a week after he sent out those forty seven thousand. Mm-hmm emails or letters. I still, in my mind, can't comprehend how someone can go through 16,000 responses in four or five days. He's definitely using some type of purpose-driven math to come to conclusions. <laughs> Absolutely agree. Uh, of course, you know, they've got a team of people responding, and they've probably got computer programs that play with those numbers, too. And so anytime there was a positive yes affirmation, it was probably just automatically counted. But I agree well, with you. He, there's some number playing going on there. Well, also, I mean, within that time frame, between writing the 47,000, the letter that was sent to 47,000, and the 16,000 replies, somewhere during that time frame, he had some major issues with his knee. He got fitted with a brace. He got issued a cane. He must be a Superman to be able to deal <laughs> with that type of infirmity while conducting all these other this all this other business and these affairs. Because in nothing in his wording even implied that there was a team or staff or anyone else helping him. It was always presented that he was doing it. That he received it. No, I agree. I I agree. And unfortunately, that's part of the ongoing issue is that this really is more about Rick Warren than it is about Saddleback or, or the SBC. So with the backdrop of this letter, I want to just touch on at least a few of the multitude of, <clears throat> of personal tweets that Rick Warren has put out just this week. As I mean, today again is the 10th of June. Tomorrow starts 
the annual convention or, or annual meeting of the SBC, the 11th and 12th, <clears throat> he in the in the days prior to this, he has been a Twitter posting machine. And what I, what we're hoping to maybe show you is that what Rick Warren is doing is trying to obfuscate, meaning he's trying to th throw up enough dust to really stop the the debate being about what Saddleback did and make it about something else and kind of stir up enough emotional response that people going in when this vote comes up will maybe not vote based on what Saddleback did in defiance of the Baptist faith and message and in defiance of scripture. Rather, oh, this is about the direction of the SBC. So the one of the first ones that he uh, that I wanted to address, Rich, is that he posted on June seventh, and a lot of the ones that I see here, I think, are June seventh, and then you know maybe yeah, there's several of them here from June seventh. He was busy that day. Um, he says for 80 years the SBC grew without any confession of faith. For the next 90 years, we grew with a consensus confession. Eight years ago, it was weaponized as a creed to coerce uniformity in every jot and tittle. Three million members lost since. Denial is not a strategy for revitalization. Uh, there's a um, gentleman by the name of Jason Keith Allen on Twitter who responded. I think a fantastic response. Pastor Warren, this is totally inaccurate. Historically, virtually every Baptist church and association uh, had confessions from their start as the SBC as to the SBC, the local confessions were sufficient for four national consensuses until the uh, fund, mo uh, fund mod debate, I don't remember what uh, that was in reference to, necessitating the first Baptist faith and message. And Rich, you sent me this, and I'll put this in show notes. <laughs> One of the few times we can use something from Gospel Coalition that's actually useful is um, they address this very claim because he's trying to say that there's no creed, there's no confession, there's nothing that we should ever actually be held to, and it's only been in the last few years where, where we've suddenly been expected to hold to some kind of creedal confession. But it was a an a, a article uh, entitled "Confessions of Faith and the Baptist Tradition" by Thomas Kidd. And I'm not going to read everything, but um, I want to address what he says here. Referring to Rick Warren's letter, he says, uh, Warren says that Baptist unity has always been based on a common mission, not a common confession. He bases this claim on the fact that the SBC did not have a denominational confession of faith for the first 80 years of existence. This is true, but it is somewhat irrelevant since so many Baptist church associations already had confessions when the SBC was founded. All the delegates who formed the SBC in 1845 belonged to churches and or associations that adhered to a confession of faith, usually the Philadelphia Baptist Confession, 1742, or the New Hampshire Confession, 1833, the latter being arguably the most influential Baptist confession in American history. Southern Baptist churches of the pre-Baptist faith and message era, <coughs> excuse me, widely adopted the New Hampshire, Confe New Hampshire Confession, which is also why E.Y. Mullins depended heavily on that confession for the original B BFM of 1925. As a denomination, 
the SBC has now affirmed the Confession of Faith, the BFM, for almost a hundred years or a major the majority of the time it has existed. So Rick is trying to say, well, we've never even had anything that defined you know, what it meant to be a Baptist, essentially. And multiple people, Jason, uh, Jason Allen, uh, Thomas Kidd, I think there was another person who shared this, uh, uh, a, a tweet thread on this, and I'm not finding it in my notes at the moment, so I apologize. But um, let me see, it might be in this other one. But multiple people responded saying that he had, um, yeah, here, it was the J.H. Spencer Historical Society who also responded uh, talking about the various uh, uh, you know, associations and confessions that the Baptist churches had. So the idea that, oh, well, there's never been one and it's only recently that we adopted it and it was, and now it's being weaponized is historically inaccurate. It's a, it's an attempt to manipulate what actually is being said. He is trying to say that you didn't, we, we've, you know, the, I should, I say we, I shouldn't say that. He's trying to say the SBC has operated essentially with no governing confession or creed and just all kind of worked in the same direction, but that's not historically accurate. He further went on to say on the same day in scripture, a pastor was not a guy who stood behind a pulpit in a church holding a Bible preaching to a crowd. There were no church buildings until the fourth century, no pulpits until the ninth century, no printed Bibles to the 15th century. A pastor was a small group house leader. Okay, some basic truth in there but an utter minimization of actual his history. Uh, first and foremost, till the 4th century, why were there no church buildings to the 4th century? Well, go get yourself a copy of Nick Needham's 2,000 Years of Christ's Power, Volume 1. He talks about those first few centuries, the church was not recognized as a legitimate religion. It was... There were periods of some tolerate uh, of tolerance within the uh, the Roman Empire, and periods of outright persecution, but it was not a recognized religion. They were not given the same kind of recognition the pagan religions of the day did. So okay, you, let me interrupt you. Historically, he's trying to quote history. Mm -hmm. He's trying to quote this is the way that the the church was established. This is the way that. Our modern view of church and pulpits and congregations, this is the way all of it grew and was established. Mm -hmm. He's trying to base his rhetoric on history. But historically, up until the 1950s, no Protestant denomination recognized that women could be pastors. It grew out of society. It grew out of the feminist movement. It did not grow out of church. Mm -hmm. It grew out of culture. You can't even base the premise on history, because historically, up until the 1950s, 1960s, mainline Protestant denominations knew beyond a shadow of a doubt what the Bible said, knew what our founding fathers in the faith said, knew what the Reformers said when they broke away from the Catholic Church, who, by the way, still does not acknowledge women priests. But anyway, <laughs> historically, in the Protestant religion, up until the 1950s and 60s, the idea of a woman being able to preach, to teach, to lead a church was completely foreign. But now, all of a sudden, 
Rick Warren has some new revelation mm-hmm. from Scripture, has some new understanding of Scripture. He claims it's based on Scripture, but it's not. It's based on the feminist movement, and for over a hundred years, this country being taught that women can do anything that men can do when it comes to culture, when it comes to society, and when now when it comes to church. But none of that grew out of scriptures itself. It grew out of the feminist movement from the late 1800s through the different phases of the mm-hmm. feminist movement up until what we have today. If I'm wrong, I challenge anyone to prove to me from scripture that women can be pastors, teachers, and leaders in the church over men, simply put, show me the qualifications for a woman pastor, and I will reconsider everything I've said over the last year about this issue. I will reconsider everything I've said about egalitarianism and Rick Warren. And if you're listening to this and you're attending the SBC convention, go find someone that's part of the NAMB, Go find someone that's supporting Rick Warren. Go find someone that supports egalitarianism in the church and ask them what are the qualifications for a woman pastor. And please relay the reply to me because according to Dr. White and even my own observations, no one will seem to answer that Mm -hmm. question who supports women pastors. I absolutely agree with you. And that's where this little history lesson of his is another effort at throwing up some dust and throwing up some you know some confusion. Yeah, there were no churches, church buildings, and pulpits till later because that's when the church becomes a recognized religion, and once it's recognized, it can open, it, it can function more openly. It can actually buy property. It can actually, if you when you read the history of the church, and I again recommend go read Two Thousand Years of Christ Power, Volume One, working my way through that. It's amazing what actual uh, understanding of church history will do for your understanding of how we developed our, our, our understanding of scripture and ha- all the challenges that came from that and, and how we had to face challenges from the world. This is, well, how do we just understand Christ as God, for example, or how do we understand the Trinity? Uh, how do we, under- because of heresies that are brought in and because of the influence that the church had over time, how things changed. But why would Rick Warren bring that issue up? Because according to Rick Warren, you can't have confessions and creeds that govern the pulpit. Because, well, the the original church didn't even have one. Sorry, go ahead, brother. Well, I just wanted to bring this in since you're at this point. What is the, why did creeds and confessions come into place? It's what you said to fight against the heresy that was being brought into the church by the world. That was the purpose then of creeds and confessions. That is the purpose going up to the 1920s, the 60s, and 2000 for the Baptist faith and message statements. It was to stand firm on the Word of God and declare, the world may be adhering to these issues, but as men of God, as churches of God, as true Christian believers— We stand on the Word of God. This is what the Word of God says, and we adhere to this, we abide by it, we honor it, we respect it, and we obey it. That is the purpose of creeds, confessions, and faith statements. Mm -hmm. If not, all you have are suggestions of faith. You have no clear declaration of what your faith means and what it holds to. Am I right or wrong? No, you're absolutely right. 
And that's where, you know, you go back to a post he made the day before on June 6th. He says, the SBC allows churches to disagree on interpreting six essential doctrines of our salvation in Christ. doesn't explain what those six essential doctrines are. You just don't dare call a female staff who's done hundreds of funerals and pastoral care for 26 years a pastor. That gets you kicked out. Strange what matters to some Baptists. Now... I'd, number one, I'd love to see what he's referring to about the six essential doctrines. I don't. He doesn't explain that here, but well, considering there are only five points of Arminianism, yeah. I don't know where he's getting number six. I, I don't either. But the point is, is that oh well, we can differ on, uh, you know, we can differ on how we understand salvation works. Okay, so you want to talk about monergism versus our uh, synergism. In other words, is it all of God or is it a partnership between God and man? And maybe that somewhere in there, there's these six essential doctrines. Yet, uh, whether you're an inconsistent Arminian, as Dr. White would say, or you're a full Calvinist, both would agree salvation is of the Lord by faith alone, uh, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. Nobody's disagreeing on that. Nobody's saying that, uh, hey, let's pray to the Virgin Mary, for example, which would be a, a corruption of uh, of uh, how we get to Jesus. Nobody's saying uh, it's grace plus works. You know, they're 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 not. Uh, you know, we're not talking about that disagreement. We're we're not talking about um, you know. You know, semi the Pelagian heresy, which is of uh, gr- God's grace, is about making you able to actually be sinlessly perfect. And Jesus's coming to Earth was about showing us how to do it. We're not talking about that. We're talking about how we understand functionally what salvation looks like versus employing certain people in certain roles within the church that scripture has clearly defined and you're trying to say that's comparable well okay you're you're then saying that doctrine is just this malleable plato thing that even when scripture clearly identifies something as this is who, who the role of and so many people got mad well the bible never mentions pastor okay overseer bishop however you like to call it um, the point is, it's the person in whom God has called to teach and have authority over a body of believers. You have then said, well, we've created these other offices, and as long as we didn't call them pastors, they were fine. Well, hold on. So what you mean there, Mr. Warren, is that you've got women who are on staff who've done pastoral duties that you basically hid from the rest of the SBC because you didn't title them. In other words, you've had in practice women who were pastors for a very long time. And then you, instead of coming forward and saying, let's talk about this SBC, let's talk about what it means to be in in friendly cooperation, we've been piloting this thing and this is what it's been looking like, and we'd like to have this expanded within the Baptist faith and message, you openly, you first hid it under the radar, having them doing pastoral duties, and then you openly titled them pastors. So you've been in defiance 
For how long? You just didn't give them the name. Hey, brother. Yeah. What Rick Warren does not realize <clears throat> in that statement, he's revealing more truth than what people realize. Mm-hmm. And there's a reason why Rick Warren can be confused on this issue. I know personally, and like I said earlier, I know, I don't know how many, but at least 100 pastors in the southeast that part that are part of the SBC. And I hear from these pastors. I have discussions with these pastors. I've helped some of these pastors over the years in different ways. But what Rick Warren is pointing out is something no one will say. There are untold numbers of SBC churches with pastors and members who are complementarian when it comes to who stands behind the pulpit and preaches to the congregation. But in practice, when it comes to studies and group studies and and Sunday school who are actually egalitarian in their practice. They may claim to be complementarian, but they are still egalitarians in their practice when it comes to studies and when it comes to the rest of life. Because I know for a fact, and I've heard the reasons why more times than I can count, you have a church who claims to stand on the Word of God, that a shepherd cannot or an elder cannot be a woman, that it goes against Scripture because, you know, what First Timothy states in chapter 2 and 3 about women are not allowed to preach or exercise authority over a man, but yet will have a woman teaching 18, 19, 20-year-olds in some form of youth ministry or youth study or young adult class or college campus class or college-age class in a local church. I know beyond a shadow of a doubt this happens at more churches than people realize. And this, the excuse is always, we don't have anyone else to teach this class. We've always had this class. We need someone to teach this class. There's no man that will volunteer for this class. This lady is the only one that's willing to do it. That is commonplace mm-hmm. in most small SBC churches with 100 or less members. They don't have men that will step up in these leadership roles. They will mm-hmm. not step up and teach these classes. And when it comes to determining whether someone is qualified to teach a specific class, whether it be a woman teaching a woman, a woman teaching youth or children or young men or whatever, the qualification generally is who will volunteer to do it. They'll raise their hand. They'll be nominated. They'll be scheduled to be that particular group's teacher for the upcoming year. They go online, usually to LifeWay, print off some study, and the teaching usually involves doing nothing much more than reading through that study and passing out the pieces of paper. That is commonplace within SBC churches, especially small SBC churches. You have young men, and that's a discussion for another time, when a child is no longer a child and is considered a young man according to the Word of God. And even if you want to use modern classifications, whether it be 18 or 21, you have women teaching men that are over 21 that are in some college class or perhaps even married in a young married class or young adults class. You have a woman teaching these people, but you need to look deeper. That child, say a boy that's eight years old, has grown up with a woman teaching them. They go to Sunday school, they have a woman teaching. They go to high school, they have a woman teaching. 
They start the your youth youth adult class. They have a woman teaching. They go off to college and they still go into church. They have a woman teaching. They go to the campus um, class. They have a woman leading the campus ministry. They go through all of this maybe up until say age twenty eight or thirty. They graduate from college. They go to seminary. They have a woman professor teaching seminary class. They graduate seminary. They come out into the world, and now all of a sudden they're wondering, well, why is it wrong for a woman to teach me? And I've been a, I've been grown an adult for the last 10 or 12 years, and I've always had women teachers. What's the problem? That is the problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Now, here, here's an interesting thing, since you're bringing that, that part of it up. This is one of those places where, he's, remember, Rick is not trying to address, we defied the Baptist faith and message. He's trying to now deny the need for any kind of governing documentation for the uh, the SBC. But he is going to say, "But I'm you know I'm right about women preaching." So now, what he probably should have been doing as a cooperating church when he was actually the pastor coming and making these pitches and trying to make resolutions, which would have been unbiblical even then. Now he's trying to argue it on Twitter and he's stirring up it much to, you know, to the type of people you're, you're talking about. And so another post from June 7th, state conventions are wisely shielding their churches from the new inquisition. Again, hear the appeal to the emotional response. <gasps> New Inquisition. That's scary. That's bad. So they were only asked for numbers, not names. Added together, at least 1,928 SBC churches have women pastors quietly serving on staff. Most are in larger growing churches. About half are ordained. Now that's that should be really eye-opening to the SBC that you have nearly 2000 churches where women are serving on staff and half of them are ordained so uh, almost that, a thousand of them okay that would be less than 1% of 47,000 right, I, right? I, oh i absolutely i absolutely agree but that's that's okay. it should be an eye opener so, uh, it should be an eye opener but it also should show that you have less than 1% of the total number of SBC member churches, you have less than 1% that are doing this. So the other 99 or so percent should cave and bow mm-hmm. to the whims of the 1% or less. Right. Because they say they're right. They're that one, that less than 1% is going to dictate to the rest of the convention what it should and should not do. Am I understanding this correctly? That's, that's exactly what he's, he's doing without saying it. Because he's trying to say... Even though the Baptist faith and message is only a consensus uh, document, it's it's being used to start an inquisition, so it needs to change. And he's now dictating that a very small number of churches have these women who are quietly serving on staff. Now, I find that interesting that he says quietly serving on staff, but he doesn't define what that means. And then half are ordained. So oh, let's just say about a thousand women on staff are ordained pastors and they're trying to be quiet about it. So what 
They, they, everybody recognizes this. This is something the Bath and Faith and Message for years has, has, has defined. But in defiance of it, they're ordaining women in any way. And now he's outing them to some extent and trying to stir up favor for them. Look, you've got churches within your ranks that have women serving this way. And then he he posts this uh, this uh, this picture, which is really just a picture of words. It says, in the Old Testament, priesthood was limited by gender and ethnicity. Only males from uh, Levi's tribe were priests. But now P Peter says, we are all a kingdom of priests. Stop. That is not referring to functions within the church. Rather, that we as a people of God are preaching the gospel to the world at large. That is not describing the functions within the church. That's a misuse of scripture. Then, I can't explain this because I went and looked. I just double-checked the comments. Somebody else said the same thing. I don't know where he's getting this wording from unless he's inserting it because I, I don't even think the message says it this way. He says, The birth of the church at Pentecost ended restrictions, quoting Acts 2.17 and 18. I will pour out my spirit on all people. Both sons and daughters will preach. Young men will see visions and old men will dream dreams. On all my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit on both and both will prophesy. Folks, if anyone knows what translation he got that from, I'd love to hear it because let me read you from the ESV, verse 17 and 18. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh and, uh, and your sons and daughters shall prophesy. Stop right there. There's no reference to the word preach at all. And other people pointed out the word that was used there in the Greek is prophesy. It is not preach. And, uh, and uh, so, and your sons and daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. On, on even on my male servants and female servants. And in those days, I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. Stop again. Nowhere is the way he's written this, and he's put it in quotations. He is not. This is not commentary. He is supposedly quoting this. He is inserting into scripture. Unless, if somebody wants to point it out to me, I'd love to see it. But the way he has phrased this, he is inserting into scripture what is being said. Because it does not say both sons and daughters will preach. It says, both, uh, you know, your sons and daughters shall prophesy a foretelling of the word of God, which women can do in the way that scripture defines it for them in the same way that Rich and I can prophesy foretelling, thus saith the Lord, not in a pastoral role, but in the way that scripture defines for us as people who are not pastors. There's nothing about this that makes them preachers. And he says, which part of this verse are you denying? How about denying the part you've inserted? Go ahead, brother. First, my math in my head was off. I meant to say less than 5%. I said less than 1%. But anyway, I was looking on Bible Hub going through the parallel. Mm -hmm. And so far, the only thing that I can find close is either in the God's Word translation or the Good News translation. In the God's Word, it says, your sons and daughters will speak what God has revealed. Mm -hmm. In the Good News translation, it says, your sons and daughters will proclaim my message. So again, so far that is as close as I can come to prophesy. So he is I mean, to preach, right? And so he's inserting this, and he's phrasing it even in a way that's not phrased 
in in the scriptures themselves. You know, I will uh, on all my servants, both men and women. It 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 doesn't phrase it that way. I will pour it out um, out my my spirit, and both will prophesy. It's not phrased that way. He's putting emphasis on both men and women, both sons and daughters, both prophesy. But then he inserts the word preach. So he has, in my estimation, paraphrased this out of his own mind. He's taken this passage, which is a quotation out of, bear with me here, um, Joel 2, 28-32, and he has inserted his own language. That's dangerous. And then he says, Everyone is now gifted and ordained at salvation for ministry and mission. We are all saved to serve. That is a complete conflation. All of us are gifted. All of us are called to proclaim the gospel and make disciples. All of us have a calling and a mission from God to make disciples and to proclaim the way of salvation. But not all of us are serving in the same way. He is saying, well, we're a kingdom of priests. In so much as we proclaim to the world the gospel, yes. We're all saved to serve, yes. And then the New Testament, as we said in our previous episode with regard to Rick Warren, all and and the one uh, we've actually got two episodes on uh, in responding to um, the qualifications of men and women. I believe it was uh, I didn't put down the 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 lady's name. I apologize. Beth Allison Barr, that's who it was, where we responded to her uh, uh, issue, uh, her, her comment about uh, women being able to serve as pastors. And yes, we're all called to save, or serve, excuse me, we're all saved to serve, as he says, but the functions of how we do that are defined within Scripture. He is ignoring well, all of that and inserting his own language into Scripture, that's terrifying. Well, he's paraphrasing to justify what he has Mm -hmm. said numerous times, either online or in that interview with Russell Moore, that the Great Commission states that both men and women are able to preach. That's not what it says, by the way, but that is his justification for women being able to, as he says, preach, which in the Greek, there's a reason he didn't misquote some other verses that talks about they went about preaching, because in the Greek, it's evangelized, the way that it's translated or gospelized. They went about gospelizing other people, both men and women, were proclaiming or sharing or testifying to the gospel, to, to the resurrected Christ. The Great Commission does allow both men and women to go about evangelizing. It does not give them the authority to stand in a pulpit and lead a church. He's still conflating those two definitions. And if he wanted to twist Scripture and justify his reasoning, he would have used other verses from Acts that talked about the disciples being scattered, going about preaching. But he knows that if he did that, anyone with a Greek lexicon could look up the word preach, and it is talking about evangelism, it is talking about gospelizing. It's not talking about teaching and leading a church. Yeah. There's a reason why I think he paraphrased this verse and used the word preach instead of prophesy. He's trying to justify other things that he has stuck in to scriptures to try to justify his reasoning. Mm-hmm. And his, his greatest argument, he tries 
has to use the Great Commission, Great Commission, because it says, you know, to the apostles, and it's understood in the SBC that the Great Commission is given to us today to both men and women that we're commanded to go about evangelizing. But true, it says we're we're to make disciples to baptize. But he leaves off the he leaves he leaves off the last part of that verse talking about the Great Commission that entails everything after salvation that is the responsibility of the senior pastor, of the staff, of the of the teachers in the church, and that's teaching them to obey all that I have commanded. I think Rick Warren thinks the only thing we're supposed to obey is the words written in red in the Gospels and discount everything else in Scripture, and that gets down to the nitty-gritty heart of the issue, is he's denying the rest of the New Testament. He's denying that all the epistles are the Word of God, are the commandments of Christ. Christ wasn't talking about just the commandments he stated while he was on earth. He was also incorporating what he would reveal through the apostles in the writing of the New Testament. Now, am I right or am I wrong? No, you're absolutely right. He is, you know, he's taken all these passages, ignoring what is clearly taught about the various roles that we have, and then saying, well, look here and look here and look here, therefore. I mean, at one point on June 8th, he says, I truly feel sorry for men who deprive their souls of learning profound spiritual truth from godly women hindered by their belief that no woman can teach them anything. Grateful for my mother, grandmother, mom, wife, sister, daughter, and books by sisters in Christ who have taught me so much. Stop right there. That's a lie. Nobody, nobody who is holding to a patriarchal or complementarian position has ever... Well, there may be some. I'm going to take that back. The vast majority... I, there's some strange ones on Twitter I've seen lately, and, and you know they're basically shut up and be barefoot and pregnant in the in the uh, kitchen and teach other women to be like likewise. Okay, you guys really really need to get off the train because you're really getting off into the weirds land. But the vast majority of people who are complementarian or patriarchal in their views in no way shape or form believe or have taught that no woman can teach them anything. And he knows that. He knows that. He knows that's not what is being said. He knows that, you know, women have, you know, shared the gospel with their family members, with their neighbors, with their friends, some of them men, and people have come to faith. And no, none of us, none of us would complain about that. Yeah, the idea of his grandmother, his mom, good, I'm glad that they fulfilled their roles as 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 grandmother and mom to you as a child to raise you in the Word of God. Praise God for that. Rick is just being outright dishonest when he says this, but he uses he uses, another attempt to muddy the waters. It's exactly it. But then what he does is you go back a few days before when he's referring to the passing of Charles Stanley. And he says, hypocrisy, 2023 SBC will kick out churches for having a woman preach while honoring Charles Stanley, SBC president who was saved through a woman preaching, quote, as Mrs. Wilson preached, the spirit struck me to the core. When she gave the invitation, I was the first one down, Stanley. Now, here's the thing. 
he is conflating the, the various gifts and calling that all Christians have, including women who have the, you know, the, the calling and gifting to teach other women, to teach children, to share the gospel with their friends, their families, uh, perfect strangers on the street, and then takes a woman's disobedience, this Mrs. Wilson, and says, see, Charles Stanley was saved by it. God can draw a straight line with a jacked up ruler. That doesn't mean he's telling you to go make jacked up rulers. He is telling you that he is sovereign over salvation. So even when a gospel message, whether it be bad, whether it be good, somewhere in the middle, is presented, God can still use it whether that person was in obedience or not. Ray Comfort likes to talk about, you know, there was a... um, when I think he was still in New Zealand at the time and in Speaker's Corner, Christ Church in, in Speaker's Corner, where he would go out to preach and one day this guy just comes up to him and wants to know how to get saved and Ray hadn't even spoken yet and he, and in conversation with him, come to find out there had been an atheist out there the day before mocking the presentation of the gospel and saying, well, you just got to repent and you got to get saved. And he's like, it struck him. So an atheist mocking the gospel said enough of it that God used it to save a man. So, so do we ordain atheists now? Of course well, not. That goes, goes back to that pragmatic way of thinking, that purpose-driven life, that the ends justify the means. It doesn't matter whether we're honoring the Word of God. It doesn't matter whether we're obeying the Word of God or not. All that matters is that people are getting making professions of faith, and there's a difference between making a profession of faith and being possessed by the faith, which is the saving power of Christ. Amen. That's exactly the point. And so all of this, going back, remember what we said at the beginning, Rick Warren does not believe that the Baptist faith and message should have any doctrinal authority, so to speak. And and, and if we're speaking of it in the strictest sense of course yes it's not a creed it's not a confession in the sense of say it's not the the london baptist confession okay it is it is not one of those but it is a governing document in so much as the churches who come together and made agreement upon this this baptist faith and message 2000 which is based upon biblical truth have said we will come together in agreement to cooperate with this with each other according to this document. It has that level of authority. And he's trying to say, no, 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 you can't do that. And then he's gone on the attack against it. He's trying to say it's a consensus document, so it doesn't really matter, but then he attacks it with all of these various things. Which brings us down but, to... Oh, go ahead, brother. I just want to throw this in and remind everyone. But when it comes to the issue of a pastor being abusive... He's all for that mm-hmm. same amendment that was passed, I think, like I said, in 2015. He's all for that and all for the authority being given to the SBC Executive Committee to disfellowship a church who will not discipline an abusive pastor. But yet he's against that same authority when it's aimed at him. And that's exactly the problem. That really is exactly the problem. This is, look, a lot of people have pointed out how Donald Trump has never let go of 2016. And in truth, the reason he's probably running again is he feels that 
I, you know, that was stolen from me. I'm getting it back. Same kind of energy here. Okay. How dare you actually tell me no? How dare okay, you? It, it, I mean, it's really, that's what it boils down to. It is a, how dare you? How I, I am the great Rick Warren. How can you tell me no? It's hilarious because we never discussed this in pre-show and I have the exact same thing in my notes <laughs> that, that these progressive liberals or drifters within the, or grifters, I should say, within the SBC absolutely despise Donald Trump, but yet they're supporting a man who is acting just like Donald Trump. Absolutely. There was a tweet I, I copied and pasted and saved in my note app the other day. And I was going to work this in if there was time, but now I'm just, I've got to, because that was too funny that you came up with the exact same comparison. The, I'm, I'm going to paraphrase the tweet, then I'm going to go back and read the actual tweet. The SBC disfellowshipped Rick Warren over his mishandling of God's word. We know Rick Warren will repeat, repeatedly lash out at his enemies, exhort his followers, and lie continuously. Now, the original tweet was the DOJ just indicted Donald Trump over his mishandling of classified material. Mm -hmm. We know Trump will repeatedly lash out at his enemies, exhort his followers, and lie continuously and see others as public enemy number one. I just found the correlation hilarious, and you just said it. Like I said, we never even discussed this in pre-show. <laughs> but people that within the SBC that are egalitarians absolutely hate and despise Donald Trump. But the way many of us view it, Rick Warren is acting and reacting just like Donald Trump. Is that kind of what you were going for? I, very, very much so. It, it's just that that's the kind of arrogant behavior that's how it's a how dare you moment it really is and it's unfortunate because what he's doing in this is demanding that the SBC roll over and play the game his way even though he's trying to insist oh this is for everybody this is to protect all our churches because we don't want you to to have to hide from the new uh, from the new Inquisition, and, and we don't want a, a handful of people, you know, tyrannically ruling over the SBC. No, this is, how dare you tell me no? That's what this is. And what we're trying to show is that Rick has not honestly dealt with what Saddleback has done. Rather, he is attacking the very government, the, the very document that he is trying to, at the same time, say really doesn't hold any weight anyway. So there are two more things to cover. We, we're about an hour and a half into this, and we want to wrap things up for everybody. But there were two things that he posted today, and, and I'm going to go with the second one first because I think the last one is puts a pin on why we're addressing this. So the first one today... He, uh, he labeled it, My Apology to Christian Women, referring to uh, 1 John 1, 6 through 9. So I'm going to ro roll over there real quick, uh, turning pages again, and, but while we read this. And so we're going to read this in its entirety, and we're going to address it real quick. Rick says, My biggest regret in 53 years of ministry is that I didn't do my own personal exegesis sooner on the four passages used to restrict women. Shame on me. 
I wasted those four years of Greek in college and seminary. Okay, stay on focus. Don't go for the low-hanging fruit. Um, (laughs) When I finally did my proper due diligence, laying aside 50 years of bias, I was shocked, chagrined, and embarrassed. So many hermeneutical rules were being violated, including never build a doctrine on a single word that is used only once in Scripture. There's nothing to compare it to correlation. Do your own study of a, to, I think it's supposed to say authenticate, <laughs> grammarly, Mr. Warren, use grammarly, to authenticate, uh, uh, study, of, oh, wait, do your own study of authentitime? Okay, I, I, then I, I will stand corrected. I said that wrong. I thought he was trying to say authenticate. I think he was using it, the Greek word. Study of authentitime in ancient, in ancient Greek. <laughs> Okay, that's where Grammarly needed to kick in, in ancient Greek, and you'll be shocked too. I think it was maybe because I didn't want to know anything that might challenge the view I wanted to believe for 50 years. But eventually, integrity required that I read over 70 commentaries by inerrantist scholars that blew apart my comfortable, traditional, and culture-based interpretation. No seminary told me that these those commentaries even existed. <laughs> right. Stick with the low-hanging, don't go for the low-hanging fruit. And Baptist bookstores refused to carry them. My mother managed a Baptist bookstore. So I accepted the interpretation that was most comfortable for me as a man with my background. Then reading over a hundred books on the early church and the history of the Great Commission for FTT, I don't know what FTT means, demanded my repentance. That journey was both painful and humbling. I don't expect to win in New Orleans. Yes, you do. And I certainly don't expect to change the mind of an angry fundamentalist. Yes, you do. They're, sorry. Uh, they are responsible to God, not to me. I am doing this as an act of obedience to the Holy Spirit. No, you're not. I, uh, <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> I keep doing it. But I do want to do this. I publicly apologize to every good uh, woman in my life, church, and ministry that I failed to speak up for in my years of ignorance. What grieves me is that I hindered them in obeying the Great Commission uh, Great Commission command and Acts two seventeen through eighteen that everyone is to teach in the church. I held them back from using the spiritual gifts and leadership skills that the Holy Spirit had sovereignly placed in them. That breaks my heart now, and I am truly repentant and sorry for my sin. No, you're not. I wish I could do it all over again. Christian woman, will you please forgive me? Regardless of attacks and the vote result, I want a clear conscience before my Master that I repented and that this sinner did what he asked me to do. With that, I am completely content to let him be the judge and evaluator of my life and ministry. We must live for an audience of one. Which is interesting that he says that, considering what he has been tweeting for the last week. Um, no, you're not worried about an audience of one. So he, he says this is 1 John 1, 6-9. through 9. So let's, let's look at that real quick. Uh, starting in verse 6, If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness... We lie and we do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light and we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful to and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse from all unrighteousness. So he is saying he sinned. And so this is his repentance. The sad truth about this is... Um, Rick Warren has made a career, 53 years of ministry, compromising the Bible. He, you know, I, I don't, you know, I, I was saying this to somebody, or saying this on Twitter earlier today. Somebody said, I've lost all respect for this man. I said, I 
what little respect I may have once possibly could have had for the man was dashed upon the rocks when he was on uh, Fox News with Sh uh, Sean Hannity and uh, it was Hannity and Combs was the show back in the day, back when Fox had a semblance of being balanced. Uh, <laughs> and he's talking to these two newsmen and he says, try Jesus for 60 days. That was his, that was his presentation. Try Jesus for 60 days. That was a couple decades ago. He has made a career of compromising biblical truth. My turn. Go ahead, brother. All of that you read, I want our listeners to focus on one sentence that proves everything that we said throughout this entire episode, especially what I said. Yes, I said. Chris didn't. If you want to blame somebody, blame me. What I said <laughs> at the beginning of this show about there's no discussion, there's no one addressing the leadership of Saddleback, the elders of Saddleback, the deacons, the committees, the meeting, whoever is in charge, who Rick Warren submits to, whose authority he submits to, instead of, you know, biblically submitting to the authority of the elders of his church, Rick Warren is the Lord of Saddleback. Make no yeah. mistake. The sentence in that what you just read proves this. I do not expect to win. I, it was not Saddleback. It was not God's truth, God's word, anything. It was, I do not expect to win. That is the entirety of Rick Warren's argument. Him. It's all about Rick Warren. And to address what he said about not building a denomination based around one word, that's obscure, or I forget exactly how he worded it. Um, he needs to open his Bible and read it. God devoted an entire chapter on the qualifications of overseers and deacons. An entire chapter. Open your Bible and turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3. That's an entire chapter devoted to the qualifications of overseer and deacons. The word he is used multiple times. It goes into great deal in detail, stating he, and then adding on his wife, his children. Mm -hmm. There's no way to misunderstand an entire chapter as proclaimed by God laid out in the scriptures. This is what God said. This is what Christ meant. This is how we are to address this issue. Not to mention multiple other passages like First Timothy chapter 2, in Titus, in Corinthians, in Ephesians, other verses that address this issue. He's trying to make it sound like there's just some one obscure word that all this is based on. He's misrepresenting the Word of God by that statement alone. And anyone that's been a pastor for 40 or 50 years who's done everything that he's claimed to have done it's taught as many people as he's claimed to have taught that wrote, you know, books that has done this and done that, went to seminary, went to college. If he doesn't understand this one basic principle that he's now changed his mind on after 50 years, why should we believe him now when he's saying that he was wrong for 50 years? If he was wrong about that for 50 years, what else was he wrong about? Mm -hmm. I mean, that is, that is part of, issue is okay now all of a sudden i have changed my mind 
And thus, it goes back to what I said. He, Rick Warren, changed his mind. No one else. It's just all about him, his opinion, and his thoughts. And now he's trying to appeal to everyone else to vote for him. And at this point, it reads and looks more like a high school student council election in a popularity contest than it does men and women of God reading God's word and standing on God's word. No, Rick Warren's twisted it into a popularity contest mm-hmm. like some high school student council election. Yeah. Is that the way you see it? Oh, absolutely. Let, let's go back to what we said earlier. When Rick Warren and Saddleback ordained these three women, whom he admits, by his own statements, as he, as you said, he admits more than he uh, um, people realize, were functionally past, pastors with just different titles. Because as he said, they were doing pastoral uh, duties. They had, a, for example, hundreds of funerals that they were doing something a pastor would do because you're giving a message to a mixed congregation that addresses the passing of someone from a biblical perspective. So go back to when he did that. Apparently back then he had this revelation. Where where was this then? Where was Rick Warren's repentant apology? Where was Rick Warren's effort to reverse this doctrinal injustice a few years ago? Nowhere. There's nowhere to be seen. Now, on the eve of the annual meeting, for purposes of in an emotional plea, he apologizes and seeks the forgiveness of women he's wronged. Why? It's an emotional plea. It, it's it's a popularity contest. Look, I'm going in repentant. Not repentant to the SBC. Not repentant for the outright de- uh, defiance of the Baptist face of the message that he and his church at the time agreed to and said they would be in friendly cooperation with. Nothing of that nature. No repentance for attempting to manipulate all those in attendance at last year's annual meeting where he bragged upon himself for six or seven minutes talking about the millions of pastors he's trained more than all the seminaries combined, as he said. No repentance for that. But on the eve of this, I'm sorry, there were two, I said there were two, there's three things I actually want to pull up. Uh, <laughs> there's one other that just really irked me. Um, and this is for an audience of one. I'm sorry, that is absolutely atrociously dishonest. That is a, look at me, I'm not like those other people. Look at me, I'm here for you, ladies. That's what this is. 
Um, and that's that is gut wrenching. And the reason I say that is there's before I grab this last one, and this is where, um, well, this last one and then one other. Uh, was there something you wanted to add there, brother? Well, I lost my train of thought. Just go ahead. If it comes back, okay. I'll interject. So the reason I say that he's going in that way is the tweet that he put just one hour before his apology. To understand the current makeup of who attends the annual meeting, you you need to know that likely 30% of the convention is now composed of people who are quote-unquote fighters by nature. Fighters only feel alive when they are angry and fighting something. That percentage has gone up because of those who don't like to fight stopped. Oh, excuse me. That percentage has gone up because those who don't like to fight stopped coming. They're part of the 3 million former Southern Baptists who have abandoned this SBC since 2015 when the Constitution was changed. Interesting. Um, Rick, how many of those are SBC churches that have left because the church, uh, the SBC is going left? Did you in include that number? I don't think so. So the voices of the angry fighters get louder each year. History shows when fighters run out of enemies to demonize, they inevitably turn on themselves. It's already started. Conservatives are now fighting each other, or, or each other now. That is basically a character assassination of those who are calling Rick Warren's actions unbiblical, manipulative, a violation of the Baptist faith and message, all of it. That is a character assassination. Because those, there are some people, Rich, you and I both know, in fact, we encountered some of it before the show started. Um, there are some people that live to fight. No question. Absolutely. Um, the idea that you're being held accountable for your actions because, well, they just prefer to fight. And I, I, I'm, a, I'm a peaceful guy. I mean, I only emailed 47,000 churches. I, I, I've only spent the last week mischaracterizing the SBC, mischaracterizing the um, Baptist faith and message, mischaracterizing Scripture, um, so that when we went in... I, I would win this opportunity to have Saddleback reinstated. No, no, I'm the nice guy because an hour later I say to all the women, I, I sinned against you, and, and I'm the repentant one. Well, I'll add this right there. Um, I posted this several days ago. In a lot of ways, Rick Warren reminds me about that one friend or one family member we never hear from until they want something. In 50 years, how many times did he send an email or a letter to 47,000 exactly. churches to basically every pastor in the SBC. In the last 50 years, how many times has he attended an SBC convention? In the last 50 years, and I mean, there's so many things I could interject right there, mm -hmm. but it's very revealing when he's get, when Saddleback gets this fellowship. First, like I said, it's always, it's all, in all of his commentary, it's Rick Warren, I don't expect to win. It's not Saddleback. It's not his congregation. It's not even the women pastors that he's ordained. It's him. But yet, all of a sudden, he's trying to, quote-unquote, pour his love out on these SBC pastors and these women and doing all these things. But 
what's really revealing, he did none of this prior to mm-hmm. being disfellowshipped from the SBC. And I know a lot of people might be naive and not see it, not realize it, but this is no different than what Democrats do towards blacks when it comes to election time. They start pandering to them because they need something from them. They need their votes. The rest of the time, they're forgotten and tossed aside. That's exactly what Rick Warren is doing now. He's not using scripture to defend his case. He's using emotional pleas. He's trying to prick you know, that emotional response and trying to muddy the waters and trying to be confusing. And sadly, there's many people in the SBC, and sadly even more is that there are many pastors within the SBC that will fall for this. Absolutely. He's trying to re-energize those within the NAMB he has financially supported over the years, those that he has trained that are within the NAMB and other entities within the church. He's trying to get them jacked up and trying to get them Remind, basically, he's reminding how much he's done for them and making, the, making pleas to others that are kind of on the fence. The real question is how many of his supporters will show up in New Orleans versus the number of ones that support the Bible? Because you're either supporting the Bible or you're supporting Rick Warren. You're not doing both. Amen. Amen. And that's the thing. This is, as you say oh, I need something from you right now. And I need you to see me as the really the unifying force in rescuing the SBC from these terrible people, these fighters, these people who are trying to change the, the Baptist faith in the message into some sort of weapon and to get rid of people like us, like us. Um, I mean, yeah, I'm using paraphrase, but He's trying to suddenly identify with these thousands of SBC churches. He couldn't be bothered to be in communion with for years in, in some of these conversations. And, and I, I'll be honest, I, I, I've been a little salty this week. Um, maybe, maybe I need to tighten that up a little bit. And I, I apologize for some of the maybe... Look, when I see somebody playing games like this, I can get a little upset. <laughs> and uh, I, I, I've spent my my entire career dealing with people who are liars and manipulators, and I can see it coming from a mile away. And this is this is lying. This is manipulating. This is a trying well, to... I'm, Go ahead, brother. I'm going to, echo, I'm going to echo what you said, because I've been salty too. But you've dealt with them. Prior to salvation, I spent my entire <laughs> life being one of those liars and manipulators. Yes. I did it enough before salvation to be able to recognize yes. it now when I see it from a professing Christian. Exactly. And so I will ask for forgiveness for some saltiness on my part um, where it may not have been due. So the problem is, is this individual could not be bothered to be in communion with these thousands of churches except for using them to promote him and his ministry to sell them things, to get them on board with his way of doing things, and then to use them when it came time to not defend himself at last year's annual meeting. Use all those numbers that he had built on, never once really identifying as being part of the SBC, but suddenly, hey, look at everything I've done for you. By his own words in that same Russell Moore interview, yeah. 
the SBC, we talking about Saddleback, we don't need the SBC. The SBC needs us. Exactly. That is a verbatim quote from Rick Warren. And that's terrifying to consider when he's trying to present himself as this humble kind of lone fighter for the SBC to rescue it from the hands of these terrible people. Which brings me to the last tweet that just irks me. Because it is a slanderous comment. Rick Warner is has a picture of himself in a, in a leg brace or a knee brace and, and with a cane. I fractured my kneecap two weeks ago. Very painful. Sir, for that I am very sorry. And I pray that God heals you. So I I'll pray be, that he's telling the truth. I'm going to give him benefit of the doubt on this one. <laughs> I'm sorry, being salty again. <laughs> yeah. So I'll be attending the convention using a cane. Okay. Can't wait to see how some use this. You know they will. Sir, that's slander. That is slander. And it is unbecoming of a man who claims to have been a minister of God. To claim that you people will use your injury, a painful injury, to somehow attack you? That's disgusting. No, he was inviting it. He, was he, he really was. He really and was. I'm but... sorry. I'm sorry. He was, he, he was intentional. He's trying to play the victim once again, just like he panders to the church to me too crowd. That's all he's doing in that post. And, and here's what's so funny is that going back to June 8th, okay, I'll, I'll read one more picture of Al Mohler. I agree with Al 100%. We affirm the responsibility of all Southern Baptists to guard our conversation so that we do not speak untruthfully, irresponsibly, harshly, or unkindly to or about any other Southern Baptist. Al Mohler, 2013. I pray you still believe this. Really? You, you, you believe that, Mr. Warren? When you just it basically said that the fighters within the SBC will use your injury against you? I don't think you agree with that at all, sir. I think you slandered many Christian brethren and you are using this injury as a way of saying, oh, you're attacking an old injured man if you fight with me on this issue. That is despicable. That is despicable. So so why did we why did we spend almost two hours, I'm so sorry, doing this? Um the the truth is, and I and Rich, I'll invite you to, to you know give your two cents about it. I actually look at what's about to happen in the next two days and I strongly suspect Saddleback will be reinstituted within the SBC. I think there are far too many people who do not see what um, uh, uh, Rick Warren is doing. There are far too many people who have been swayed by the ideology, and we've seen them in comments as we've discussed these on online. Um, oh, what about Lottie Moon? And what about mission women who have gone as missionaries? And what about this? And what about that? And utterly unwilling to engage this biblically. And utterly unwilling to examine what Rick Warren has done in an utter defiance of the Baptist faith and message and of scripture, especially. And who have been unwilling to see his behavior online, as Rich said, this is nothing more than trying to play a popularity contest 
trying to make himself seem like he's the better and everybody else who has held his church accountable as the bad guys. That's all this is. This is an attempt at obfuscation. This is throwing dirt. This is throwing mud on the wall to see what sticks. It's everything he It is a full court press assault upon the SBC so that number one, Saddleback be reinstated because how dare you remove uh, Rick Warren. But number two, to utterly change the landscape of the SBC. If they are reinstated, which I believe, in my personal opinion, I believe they will be, this will be a massive change to how the every church within the SBC views the Baptist faith and message. It will no longer be seen as having any influence upon SBC churches. It will gut the executive committee of any authority. It will gut the SBC and umbrella ent- uh, umbrella entity with any authority. It will basically reduce the entire SBC as to a bunch of churches who just slap the SBC on their na- label and do whatever they want. And that, I believe, is what he's doing. So why bother? Why go through all this trouble? Because this... I believe is so important for Christians to see when you are being manipulated by brothers or sisters in Christ or professing brothers and sisters in Christ who do everything in their power not to deal with the actual issue of what they did wrong and are are attempting to move you to do what they want. That is what Rick Warren has done. It was important, and, and, and I want you to go read this open letter because it gives the appropriate context. He, you know, he talks about that um, Southern Baptists know how to humbly correct wrongs and then appeals to the, the hot-button issue for the last few years. Recently, we've just started to do that with victims of sexual abuse in our churches. He is equating something we've talked about on this program the sexual abuse issue and the investigations and how the SBC should handle it, he is equating, wow, this terrible thing happened and so we reverse course and we're fixing it. He's equating Saddleback's removal with that. Then he says in another one, in humble, uh, in the, uh, uh, referring to the history of racism and slavery within the SBC, in, the humble, in that humble resolution, Southern Baptists lamented and repented of the sin of slavery, repudiated racism, apologized to our African-American brothers and sisters, and, and etc. He's using that and then says, the growth resulted from, this growth resulted from correction. We can do it again. He is equating the removal of Saddleback for defying Scripture and defying the, the SBC's Baptist faith, and message, Baptist faith and message with sex abuse issue, racism, slavery, etc. Correct this wrong, and it will be just like when we corrected those wrongs. He says, if we don't correct the direction we've been heading for uh, for eight years by saying no to the executive committee's misguided ruling and then repealing the unbaptist 2015 amendment, our convention will continue to grow weaker and smaller. That is manipulative. 
that is a denial of any wrongdoing. It is not repentant. It is slanderous. It is a misuse of scripture. It is a misuse of history. And he is doing this to the SBC. You will encounter people in your life who are doing exactly this. Be it pastors, laymen, uh, you know, people you know online, whatever it is. You're going to encounter people who will not address the actual issue of what they did wrong. They will address every other issue around it and make you feel like you're the bad guy. That's why we wanted to address this. Because you need to see how manipulation works. And that's what's going on here. Now, I, I would encourage... I, I was It was rather funny today. I uh, In addressing that last tweet of the picture of him with that knee brace, I couldn't... I, I just said, wow, what a cheap shot. That's all I said. Um... Somebody told me, well, just pray for him and then go do something meaningful with your life instead of being a professional complainer or something like that. Folks, if we cannot point out a highly public figure's absolute manipulative behavior in contradiction to Scripture and warn people away, how can we possibly do anything more meaningful than call people to the word of God? Yes, pray for Rick Warren. Pray for his soul. I, I don't know how you can claim to be a follower of Christ and so badly misrepresent him. Pray for his soul, but recognize the manipulation. Rich, your last thoughts before we got to let everybody go. Well, Saddleback wins the appeal, and they are brought back into the SBC. We can pretty much know, based on past track records of other denominations and churches, where that will lead the SBC. The real problem is what happens if the disfellowship holds, then what? Yeah. That is the real issue. I fear that if the disfellowshipping of Saddleback does hold, and they're not allowed back in, and they're still deemed in bad cooperation with the SBC. My greatest fear is going to be the same thing happening as happened in 2000 with the BFM. They, the, the, the one standing on God's word will declare victory. Mm-hmm. They will think, they will think yeah. that this issue is settled and done with, and wiped under the rug, and it'll be forgotten about. It's the same thing that was addressed in the year 2000. The problem with that is it won't go away. Don't think for one minute, if Saddleback loses this appeal, don't think for one minute that Rick Warren will go away. He will still be as active for the last, he will still be as active going forward as he's been for the last 50 years working in the shadows. He will not stop giving money to the NAEMB. He will not stop giving money to different entities within the SBC because I don't think any SBC entity would refuse donations by anyone that was not in the SBC. So that's first and foremost. He will still be injecting himself through money and influence 
to other members and to different entities within the SBC. He is not going to go away. He will not go away until he is vindicated in his own eyes and in his own mind. You need to wake up and realize that. Even if they are they remain disfellowship, Rick Warren will not be going away. He'll still be there. He will just be working in the shadows and behind the scenes like he's done for the last 50 years within the SBC. Like I said earlier, most people didn't even realize until last year when he took the floor that Saddleback was even a part of the SBC. Mm-hmm. He will continue to do what he's done. And the SBC will not refuse money from Saddleback or from Rick Warren. He will stay there. He will remain. But even deeper than that, the problem will still remain that within all of these different SBC churches who claim biblical orthodox, they are not practicing biblical orthopraxy. They are honoring God with their lips, but their hearts are far from him by the way they conduct themselves within the body of church, meaning they may deny the fact that a woman can be a pastor, but by Rick Warren's own words, they will still allow women to serve in the duties of a pastor, but they'll just change the title that that woman is given. Even if the title changes and their responsibilities and duties remain that of a pastor, in practice, they are still egalitarians. And sadly, like I said earlier, in many, many, many small SBC churches, because they don't have the men willing to stand up and do their jobs and to lead like they should, they have women teaching all these other classes, all these other groups, all these other studies. In essence, they are still practicing egalitarianism, even if they don't allow a woman to stand up in front of the church on Sunday morning and be senior pastor. That is the deep heart issue that needs changing within the SBC. And I have zero confidence that if Rick Warren stays kicked out, I have zero confidence that all these SBC SBC seminaries are going to fire all these women professors in seminary. They're not going to kick out all the women in the MDiv classes. They're not going to remove all these women on staff who are serving in the role of pastor, even if they don't have the title. Mm-hmm. Until all that changes, it doesn't really matter one way or the other whether whether Saddleback is part of the SBC or not. Yeah. Because really and truly what it comes down to, the only thing that affects a church not being a member in good standing with the SBC is that that church no longer can send messengers to the SBC National Convention. Other than that, everything I've read, nothing indicates anything else would absolutely change one way or the other for that local church, other than they're not able to send a messenger to vote for policy within the SBC Convention. They can still donate money like they've been doing, which, you know, basically at this point, the SBC is a church franchise just like McDonald's or Burger King, we pay you to operate under your name. Nowadays, I mean, historically, 50 years ago, if a church stated they were a member of the Southern Baptist Convention, you could be pretty well assured that it was going to be biblical and that from one church to the next, they were going to be standing on God's word and teaching the same thing. Nowadays, there's no legitimacy given to a church for being part of the SBC. In fact, nowadays, 
you have to stop and dig even harder if a church is a member of the SBC, because you don't know what type of doctrine, theology, or anything else they're holding to. And you know what distinguishes all that in one generation from another is the creeds, the confessions, the faith message statements. Just like a church has a statement of faith on their website, they may not hold to it in practice, but they're claiming that it's on paper. That's basically what we're looking at now. You know, is the Baptist faith the message statement just something, just words on paper that don't really mean anything? Or, you know, basically is it a suggestion of faith? Or is this something that churches are willing to stand up for and say, we stand on God's Word Amen. because the BFM is supporting God's Word, and this is what the Bible says, this is what we believe, because this is what God says in His Word. And like I said, it really comes down to this. You're either voting for Rick Warren or you're voting for God's Word. That's all there is to it. Amen. Amen. Well, folks, hopefully this... <laughs> two-hour program sorry we've not been doing that for a while and this one just had a lot uh, so thank you for your patience we hope it's been helpful it, hopefully it lets you see what's really going on uh, it's easy to i think for christians we want to give benefit of the doubt a lot and there are many times when we should and like i say i know i can let things get under my skin and I can get frustrated and I can get upset. And most of us can be, you know, want to avoid that and, and try to be generous. At the same time, um, when somebody is doing as Rick Warren is doing, we got to be willing to stand up and say, no, this is wrong. Um, so hopefully this helps you discern some of that. And, uh, we're, tr we're trying to be a bit more balanced and you know if you notice the last few episodes weren't really getting into these kind of hot button topics but I think both rich and I looked at what was going on this week we're like yeah we're gonna talk about this one <laughs> so um, thank you for your patience for a, a, a long program uh, may God be with you this week may he bless you uh, may you serve him well may as you learn from these things then go out and Seek to honor God truthfully with his word and how you interact with others. Um, as Rich and I both said, we were both a little, maybe a little salty this week on some of these comments. So I'm going to encourage you, unlike myself sometimes, try to approach it, even if you have to stand firm, to, uh, to voice truth without being unnecessarily harsh or um, unnecessarily salty. I guess that's the phrase I'm, I'm using tonight. Preach the truth. Um, don't, As Rich has often said, you don't have to uh, show up to every fight you're invited to or not invited to. If you see something that's... Uh, being said that's unfair or unjust, consider how you will approach it. If you see manipulation, feel yes, by all means, call it out. But remember that you are reflecting the truth of God. You are reflecting your Savior. And while there is definite time for passionate and firm 
uh, responses. There's also a time for responding in a manner that is loving and compassionate and educational and edifying. So learn to balance those because I don't always do that well. <laughs> so God bless you guys this week. Uh, we hope this has been helpful to you. We look forward to talking to you next time. Whatever you do this week, do it for the glory of God. God bless you. Good night. We'll see you next time.